I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 104 of Talking Golf History, in the history of Los Angeles Country Club, with our special guest, USGA golf historian, Katie Boyce. Today, on our US Open special, we will dive into the history of LACC, some of the history of golf in Los Angeles and greater California, and the pivotal moments that helped create the game that we know and love today. Before we start, a short word from our sponsor, Ryan Companies. Ryan Companies U.S. Inc. is one of the largest national real estate development companies in the United States. Ryan Companies is unique in that it offers its clients a full range of services that include real estate development, construction, architecture, capital markets, and building management. If you are in need of a real estate developer anywhere in the continental United States, check out Ryan Companies at www.ryancompanies.com. Now let's tune in to episode 104, The History of LACC. Katie, welcome to Talking Golf History. Thank you so much for having me. Katie, uh, how long have you been an historian at the USGA? I've been at the USGA since September, so I'm relatively new here. And how did you find your way into you know the study of history, golf history, and then, of course, the USGA? What attracted you to it? Yeah, well, I've always been a huge fan of history um, and of sports as well. Um, so when I was... Uh, in my undergraduate work at Villanova University, I began really researching the history of sports. And for my history major, we had to write a senior thesis. And that is when I really began to explore this this rich world of sports history. And um, I did my undergraduate thesis on the 1936 Berlin Olympics, um, which was a really fun way um, to look at sports and history, but also to sort of understand and um, racial dynamics going on both in the United States and in Germany on the eve of of World War II. Um, So that's really how I got into sports history in the first place. Um, And then in my graduate work at William & Mary, um, when I was picking my dissertation topic, I knew I wanted to do something with sports history. And I sort of fell backwards into golf. It wasn't what I was initially seeking out. Um, but I knew I wanted to tell a story about sports that that transcended the sport itself. So I wanted to be able to look at American society, race, class, and gender, and sort of the allocation of environmental space. And golf was really the perfect fit as a way that I could tell all of these different stories through sport. Um, so I really see golf as a way to study U.S. history more broadly. So when I was writing my dissertation and I was focusing on Gilded Age golf, 
Um, I spent a lot of time here at the USGA researching. Um, the USGA has the largest, most comprehensive collection of golf history in the world, an amazing library and archive filled with treasures and primary documents. So I was spending a lot of time here doing research and writing my dissertation. And so I really got to know the USGA and the USGA Museum. And so when the position of uh, historian opened up, I, I decided to apply. Um, and it turned out to be a really great fit for me. So I, I left um, William & Mary, teaching at William & Mary, and I came here to the USGA. And I'm, I'm really happy. Uh, here I work with an amazing team of curators, historians, uh, museum professionals. Um, and it's really cool to work at the oldest sports museum in the country. So I have to ask, are you a golfer? I am a golfer, yeah. Oh, good. There you go. I mean, I'm sure. I, I Do you have historians or you do you know of any historians at the USGA that don't play golf? Because it wouldn't have to be a prerequisite to working there, I'm sure. Of course. We have people on our team who don't play golf. Um, we all focus. We love museums. We love history. We, you know, many of us have our master's. In, my master's is in history. One of my colleagues' master's is in museum studies, art history. So we're all museum professionals first. Um, and so some of us do play golf as well, but not, not everyone does. And that's certainly not a, not a requirement here. That's great. So can, can you give our audience an idea of what you do for the USGA? Like what is a typical day for Katie, USGA golf historian? I know there's probably not a typical day, but if you could just outline what you might do in a given day. Yeah, that's actually the first thing I was going to say. There really is no typical day at the USGA where we're always kind of busy in different ways. So I fulfill a few different roles here. So in my role as historian, um, I showcase the game um, through guided museum tours, which I provide um, to any type of group, really. I mean, private groups that would like a tour, schools, other country clubs, golf course superintendents. Um, I, I will tailor a, a museum tour to their interests, whether it's someone from Marion Golf Club, and maybe I'll focus more on, on Marion golf history. So I give a lot of different museum tours, uh, which, which is a really fun part of my job to be able to engage with people and, and watch them experience, experience the museum for the first time, um, sometimes even giving tours to former USGA champions, um, which is an amazing feeling when you walk into the Hall of Champions at the USGA Museum with a champion, and they see their name on the wall for the first time. So giving tours is definitely one of my favorite favorite parts of my job. Um, I also provide research support um, for historical inquiries. So we get a lot of questions from both internal and external researchers who um, want to learn more about the history of golf. And sometimes it's someone here on our communications team asking me, you know, who the who the youngest qualifier was in a U.S. Open. And other times it's someone whose, you know, grandfather may have played in, played in the USGA event. And um, I can help them find some some stories about that. So it kind of the, the research support really varies, which is another thing that keeps my job really fun and exciting is, is all of the different research requests. You know, I never know what's going to come in, if it's going to be something about turf grass or the history of a flagstick. Um, you really never know. Um, so I really love getting to do those different um, research requests. Um, we also provide, as I mentioned, we have internal research requests as well. 
Um, and we provide historical context for a lot of institutional decisions that are made at the USGA. So sometimes before they're making a, a big decision, whether it's in governance or something else, they might say, well, what did we do about this previously? Let's look at the last hundred years that the USGA has been around and, and look at how they have dealt with these issues in the past. Um, and so sometimes we will put together some sort of presentation for them. And, and the final aspect of my job um, really is to advance knowledge on the history of the game through, through different ways, whether it's joining you today on this podcast, popping onto Golf Channel another day, or um, also publishing original scholarship. Um, as I said, I'm, I was in a PhD, I, I still am in a PhD program, so I, I continue to work on my dissertation while I'm here and, and publish work and writing on, on stories that have yet to be told about golf. That's so, so cool. A lot of, no, no. So cool. Yeah, no, no typical day. I mean, I, I certainly think I have the coolest job in the world, so. That's amazing. I feel very lucky. So let me ask you three things regarding the USGA and the museum. Uh, what, what so far is your favorite moment of working in the USGA museum? Favorite moment. Wow. Um, well, I sort of already touched on this with the tours, but I I love when I can walk a, a former USGA champion into the Hall of Champions for the first time. And they are seeing, so for those who haven't been to the USGA Museum and Library, we have a room called the Hall of Champions where we keep all of our original trophies. And on the walls of that room, we have plaques for every year. And we list the name of every champion of every USGA event going back to 1895. Yeah, and that's the and key. It's not just the U.S. Open yeah. and the Women's U.S. Open. It's all of the mm-hmm. USGA events. Yes, we have 15 now with yeah, the Adaptive amazing. Open. Yeah, so there's a lot. And so I, I love that moment when they see their name for the first time. Um, it's really powerful. So that's that's probably one of the most special moments as the historian. How about your favorite artifact so far within the collection? Is there anything you've come across where you've just been in awe of that item? I love, and this isn't one specific item, but we have an amazing collection in our library of scrapbooks. And I, I just love flipping through these scrapbooks that were put together in, you know, 1899 and someone back then cut out newspaper articles and, and sound like, maybe a photographs even at the time, and they put them together in a scrapbook. Um, so there's some that we have here specifically talking about the U.S. Women's Amateur, which is one of our three oldest championships. And just to know that someone cut out the newspaper articles covering those women in the 1890s and thought, you know, this is worth saving. And they cut it out and they put it in a scrapbook, and now we have it in our collection. And sometimes I don't even know who made the scrapbook. But I know someone took very careful care to do it 130 years ago. And to me, that's some of our best primary source material. Um, I love I love flipping flipping through the scrapbooks. Um, my favorite artifact, I'd have to say, but this is sort of a favorite of many of us on the museum and library staff. Um, we have Amelia Earhart's golf clubs. Oh, here, wow. Um, I, did, I don't really think I knew that. Yes, it's a neat artifact to have in our collection and to stress the point that we're not just collecting um, professional golfers, but but other other people as well and other people who golfed who played major roles in American history. Um, and Amer- Amelia Earhart's head covers actually have her initials on them, uh, which is pretty cool. 
That's pretty remarkable. I mean, I thought you were going to go Alan Shepard's Moon Club. I thought you were going there. I know that's a favorite <laughs> of many that visit the museum, but I did that not know Amelia Earhart's clubs were there. That's crazy. They are. We also have Jackie Robinson's clubs, Joe Lewis's, um, a lot of um, clubs of remarkable figures in American history. Do you have Eisenhower's or did the Eisenhower Museum get those? Do you know? We have a lot of Eisenhower artifacts. I know. You've outbid <laughs> um, me many, many times. <laughs> our most our most recent acquisition for President Eisenhower is very exciting. We have his golf cart, which we recently acquired from the World Golf Hall of Fame. Oh, that's terrific. I mean, you're going to build you're going to build you're you're going to need to build like another edition of the museum. But I guess you're you're going to have a new edition of the museum in Pinehurst as I understand. Is that correct? We are, and I'm I'm happy to talk about that as well. Um That'll be opening spring of 2024 in time for the 2024 U.S. Open, which will be held at Pinehurst. Um, And that's another part that I didn't even mention um, in my day-to-day job right now. Um, We're working very hard on that project. So like in Florida, there's a room with lockers that commemorate every member of the World Golf Hall of Fame. So in Pinehurst, we're going to mirror that model and there will be lockers. And inside every locker, there will be artifacts that belonged to that World Golf Hall of Fame member. Um, And part of my job right now is to write some of the text that will be going just outside the locker to tell our visitors a little bit about um, who that person was and some of their major accomplishments in golf. Oh, how fun. I mean, you're, you're it's a really fun project. creating a new museum. I mean, how many people have that opportunity in their lifetime? As a historian and as someone who works in museums, it, it's, it's a dream. I mean, you're right. There's not that many. They're not popping up every day. No. So to be on, you know, the ground floor and in, in working on this project has been a, a remarkable experience um, for me and for everyone on our staff. Um, and the first floor of the museum, it's going to be called the USGA Experience going to be two floors. Um, On the first floor, there's going to be a more science of golf side um, that talks about, you know, green section work that we do at the USGA. Um, And then the other side will have a temporary exhibit space where we will be able to showcase um, some more artifacts that aren't on display now. Um, So that will be in the downstairs. And then upstairs, we'll have that World Golf Hall of Fame that I was talking about with the, the locker room layout. Oh, gosh, I can't wait. You're saying 2024? Is that the plan? Spring spring of 2024. So it'll be ready to go for anyone coming to the US Open at Pinehurst in 2024. Well, we're going to have to do a special podcast for the opening. That, Absolutely. That's the only way to do it. Definitely. It's the only way to do it. I All right. Well, let's let's dive into uh, the history of LACC and the uh, history of golf in Los Angeles. We'll touch on it in a little bit. But I'm going to just go into, if you don't mind, a little brief history of the golf course um, how do we start this? Uh, one of my favorite stories about the start of golf in Los Angeles kind of mimics, and I think maybe Katie, you can talk about this as well, is how golf took off right before the turn of the 1900s. Like golf was coming into its own. This is pre Harry Varden tour of America in 1900. If maybe just give us a historical context of pre-1900 golf in the United States and how that apple seed basically took off across the country and eventually made its way to LA and LACC in 1897. Could you give us some historical sure. context? 
Sure, absolutely. I can do that. Well, first of all, you say how that apple seed took off, which makes me think of the apple tree gang and um, 1888 when St. Andrews was founded up in Yonkers, um, which is one of the oldest continuously existing golf courses in the United States. And John Reed came over to the United States with his wife and his, his four children and founded that golf course. And so a lot of people see that they refer to John Reed as the father of American golf. And and we see that as a a starting point, a major moment when golf sort of really takes root in the United States. So that happens in 1888. And that's right outside of New York City. And I would say in the next couple of years, you start to see golf courses pop up around, around New York City, the Northeast, greater Boston and Philadelphia area. Um, very quickly at a, a remarkable rate. Um, and obviously in 1894, the USGA is, is formally founded, um, the United States Golf Association, with the, the main goal of running a national championship, so organizing those national championships. But a lot of the clubs at that point are in the Northeast. I mean, you have, you have Chicago, but, but for the most part, you're looking at the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast. But pretty quickly, you see the sport just spread across the country. And by 1897, the Los Angeles Country Club is is founded. Um, originally, it's called the Windmill Lynx. Yeah, I love that story. <laughs> yeah, isn't that neat? Well, there was a windmill on the property. Yeah, an so abandoned one. The windmill Lynx. Yeah, and they, they yeah. had a makeshift clubhouse in this old windmill. And, you know, I, I just, I mean, I love the idea of it. It's a nine-hole course. I, I, you know, I don't know if we have any images of it, but it, it sounds and feels... To me, it sits on 16 acres, which makes me think more pitch and putt or short course. And, uh, right, much it, shorter. Yeah, it, it resided on Pico, and I'm going to probably get this wrong, Elevardo Streets. So Pico and Elevardo I Streets, right. I probably got that wrong. Um, but I, And I love this. And, and, and to your point... Thanks, Alvarado. Yeah, well, to your point, I think there are some seemingly strong parallels between the foundation of LACC and the St. Andrews Golf Club out of New York. And what I mean by that is they move around, right? And, you know, in the early days, I think they were from 1897 to like 1899. They're on the 16-acre course. And then they moved to Convent Links on Hobart and 16th Street, another nine-hole course. And they stay on those nine holes for give or take, 11, 12 years, and then moved to their site in Beverly Hills, uh, the current site of LACC. So I, I just like that because, you know, as you know, at St. Andrews, I think they were at, if you count the field, maybe four courses where they first played golf, but I think officially, I think they were on three courses before they landed on their current location, which is very similar to the game at LACC. Now, why, right? I think for both reasons, you know, golf is growing and it's growing fast. And all of a sudden you have more members that you can actually maintain on a nine hole, 16 acre course. And there's more demand. And eventually they realize, you know, in the city of angels, we need more space. And so they settle upon 1911, their current location in Beverly Hills. And the first designers are Sartori, Tufts, Macbeth, and Orr. And I don't know much. Do you know anything about that early design? I don't. So it's okay not to. 
I do not know um, too much. I know that's when it was first expanded to 18 holes, um, and they only moved the clubhouse at that point about two tenths of a mile. Yeah, um, they the picked founders. it. Up, yeah, they basically picked it up and moved it. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> the founders were uh, Joseph Satori and and Ed Tuff. Um, but yeah, and, and I just it's really interesting what you're saying about about that growth, and I think that goes to show with the speed at which golf was growing. I mean, from a nine hole course to an 18 hole course, and just just two years. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're sitting on this site at LACC. I, I maybe fair, maybe not to call it a rudimentary uh, layout at first, but they hire a gentleman and golfer and amateur who is an expert in the field, specifically in the state of California, Herbert Fowler, who comes in the club and designs this new layout. And it's spectacular. As a matter of fact, I think 12 or 13 of the holes still exist today. Uh, before Thomas came in. And of course, Thomas then comes in, uh, I, I believe nine years later to um, update the entire course and give us the course that we have today. Now, as an aside, I'm a huge Herbert Fowler fan. It's my understanding, and I might get this wrong because I'm going off the top of my head, that he designed the 18th hole at Pebble Beach, which is one of the most famous holes in golf. And he's definitely responsible for one of my favorite golf courses in the United States, which is Eastward Ho. I was hoping to do a podcast on Herbert Fowler, and I hope to in the future, but he's a fascinating character, uh, but he's followed almost directly after that by Thomas and Bell, who basically give us the amazing layout that we're going to have for the 2023 U.S. Open. What are your thoughts on that, Katie? I think it's really exciting. I mean, George Thomas, um, he's from Philadelphia, and he was part of an amazing circle of golf course architects. Um, he was friends with Tillinghast um, and, and many others. Um, he also even designed Riviera down the road. So we've had U.S. Opens at um, George Thomas courses before, but I'm really excited um, specifically for this one, especially because um, Gil Hans um, did a five-year restoration of George Thomas's course um, recently. Um, and, and so I think it's going to be this, this golf course will be revamped to our current standards, but with, while still keeping that authenticity, um, of George Thomas's original design. Yeah. I had the chance to play it last year and it is just stunning. I mean, it's going to be such a great venue for the U S open. I, I mean, I can't even imagine now I don't want to brag, but I shot near even par. So, you know, I think, <laughs> does that get me in? I, I, yeah, I think you can go out for the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. As soon as I see that U.S. <laughs> open rough and have to play from the U.S. Open tees, I, I'd have to bow out. I'd, I'd like I'd show up and doff my cap and then make a graceful exit. That's the best I could do. But uh, I mean, I just think it it has it's such a beautiful venue. I mean, you're the city kind of hanging around you. You're in this wilderness retreat, if you will, this golf retreat in the middle of a city. And there are times where you feel like you're out there within nature, yet you're never too far from the urban sprawl of Beverly Hills in L.A. I think that's something that makes LACC really unique among most of our venues. I mean, you know, our, our New York City venues, you could say Shinnecock is, you know, a couple hours from the city. Baltus Rawls outside the city. Um, even Oakmont, it's not in Pittsburgh. No. So this is really unique. I mean, we're inside the city. It almost gives you kind of a Central Park vibe in some ways, um, which will make the, it's, it's made the build 
a little different than usual. And it's going to make for a really unique event that I'm so excited to get out there. I haven't seen the course yet. Um, but to be right in the heart of the city is, is going to be spectacular. I agree. So let's rewind the clock back 93 years when LACC hosted its first ever USGA event. Can you tell us a little bit about the 1930 U.S. Women's Amateur at LACC? Well, a little a little background just about the U.S. Women's Amateur in general. Um, it's it's one of my favorite championships, um, and it's one of our three oldest championships. It, it started in 1895 alongside the U.S. Open and the U.S. Amateur. And it also has the most beautiful trophy out of all the USGA trophies, oh, in my, my opinion. Oh, my goodness. It absolutely does. The Robert Cox Trophy is, is just spectacular. Um, Robert Cox was... Um, a, a Scotsman, a member of British Parliament, um, and he donated it to the USGA. Um, he became really, really taken with and impressed by women's golf in the United States. And he actually heard about just up the street from where we are located here in Far Hills, New Jersey, um, Morris County um, Golf Club, just, just up the street from here, um, was founded by and for women by uh, Nina and, and Annie Howland. Um, and, and when that course was founded, it, it was really unique because there weren't a lot of courses that were exclusively for women. And Robert Cox um, got word of this course and told the USGA, if you host the U.S. Women's Amateur at Morris County next year, then I'd like to donate a trophy. And of course, the USGA said yes. Um, and we still have that trophy here at the museum. Um, it's our oldest trophy that we have actually still in existence. Yeah, it's it is a stunner. So tell us a little bit about the 1930 event. Of course, absolutely. Um, so at the 1930 championship, um, Glenna Colette Bear won her third consecutive U.S. Women's Amateur, um, and Glenna is a amazing um, figure in women's golf history. Um, after winning her third consecutive event at LACC, she would go on to win the Cox Trophy three more times in her remarkable career. And we're actually fortunate enough to have all six of her championship medals um, Ooh, on permanent wow. display here at the museum. Yes, she she donated them to the USGA and they're, they're on our permanent display in our collection. Um, and Glenna became one of the first female sports heroes in history uh, she played a major role in shifting the women's game from the periphery to the limelight. Uh, she once drove the ball 307 yards, which is obviously it was a record for women at the time. And it's remarkable, especially considering the club technology of the time. Absolutely. I, I, uh, I found out a little story about her that she was taught by Alex Smith. And she was one of the first female golfers to play for power. Like many of the, the female yeah. golfers prior to this time played finesse golf. She was one of the first golfers, yeah. female golfers, to go basically be pin hunting when traditionally, <laughs> you know, the women would hit in the middle of the green. And it was said that not only could she drive, was she a long driver, but she could rival some of the best male golfers in the entire game. And I think that really helped get the headlines. I mean, on top of, of course, six women's U.S. amateurs. That's just a staggering number. It's still, uh, no one's won more. Uh, I can't imagine anyone will ever top that uh, accomplishments. Uh, fascinating. It really is remarkable. I mean, she dominated women's golf in the 1920s and 1930s, and she played alongside people like Bob Jones. Um, so like you said, she really was 
playing up there with the men. Um, just a, just a remarkable remarkable athlete, and she really advocated for the emerging role of women in sports. You know, she wrote an auto- autobiography. She wrote numerous articles. Uh, she was a member of six Curtis Cup teams. Um, so it's, I'm pretty excited to walk the course. LACC, where Glenna won in 1930 in, in just a few weeks. Yeah, a lot of people were calling her the female Bobby Jones, and, and there's so many different tie-ins. I mean, in 1930, uh, Bobby Jones wins, of course, the U.S. Open and the U.S. Amateur. But in those events, the U.S. Amateur specifically, both Glenna and Bobby won their fifth U.S. Amateur that <laughs> year in 1930, which is, I mean... I don't even know the odds of that, but like 10 U.S. amateurs between them in 1930. And then Glenna goes on to one-up him. Was it 1936 she won her sixth? She did. She won her sixth after she'd had two children. Yeah, she was like a part-time golfer, like in a real sense, not even like in a playing sense. It's pretty remarkable. Maybe we should call Bob Jones the uh, male Glenna Collette. I think that's a fair way to go. Uh, And, you know, another stat that I found was, you know, it's a question of how good was Glenna Collette. In 1924, she played 60 matches, and she lost one. Unbelievable. I mean, I mean that's, I, that's a staggering statistic. Staggering. She is, she is amazing. I, I could talk about Glenna all day. <laughs> well, and someday I will, because I'm going to do a podcast on Glenna. I think she definitely deserves it, and I think her story is not well known. As a matter of fact, a good friend of mine, Stephen Proctor, is writing a new book that includes Glenna Collette's story. And I really can't wait for that. That's his next book coming out, hopefully in the next year. Uh, but very excited to hear more about the research he finds behind Glenna and her story. Because I think it's a story that more people need to know about. And like I said, I'll be sharing more about her on the podcast uh, in future episodes. Anything more you want to cover before we jump? I just want to say I'm really looking forward to that book coming out into your podcast oh, on Glenna because yeah. I, I think it's it's a great story to tell. Um, there's there's one line I love from her when someone asked her how she could drive the ball so far, and she just said, "Well, I hit it harder than the rest of the competition." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like that. I mean, that's her. That was her style, yeah. right? Just hit it hard. Yes, I mean, like you said, um, early on. Golf was sort of seen as a sport that women could play because, oh, they could be ladylike on the course. And Glenna showed that women could be powerful on the course as well. Yeah, absolutely. They can be athletes, which clearly they are today. <laughs> they I, could be I, I mean, athletes. I am I'm always amazed with the, uh, the athletes out there playing golf, both male and female. Their talents are unrivaled. And um, I wish my game was a little bit closer to theirs. It is not, unfortunately. <laughs> So I'm an, am, I am an, an amateur in the quote unquote strictest sense. <laughs> so 24 years later, LACC would host yet another USGA event, the 1954 Junior Am. What can you tell us about that event at LACC? Yeah, so that's, that's a pretty cool story as well. Um, at the USGA's Junior Amateur in 1954, um, a 14-year-old boy teed off um, for the second time in USGA events. Um, he was the youngest player in the field, and he ended up tying for 33rd place. But um, Jack Nicholas went on to play in 65 more USGA events. Wow, I did not know that. I did not know he was in there. That's amazing. He was. It was his second USGA event. He had played in the Junior Am 
the year before at just the age of 13, but at 14, he played, um, he played at LACC. So LACC witnessed the Golden Bears career in its infancy. Oh, that is so cool. That is amazing. And, and the finals had Foster Bradley versus Al Guyberger, Mr. 59. I mean, just really cool history there. Just unbelievable. Yeah. Yes, it's it's a it's a cool story, and and we have obviously we have a lot of Jack Nicholas artifacts in our collection at the museum. Um, but one cool thing I was looking at just yesterday, actually, as we're gearing up for LACC, um, we have his qualifying medal from the 1954 Junior Amateur. He qualified in Columbus, Ohio, and they issued a medal to him for qualifying, even though he didn't he didn't make it too far in the championship that year. We can forgive him. He was 14 years old. <laughs> he was a kid, yes. <laughs> That's great. Anything else you want to add on uh, LACC and the 1954 Junior Am? That's not all I have for you. Any of these artifacts making their way to LACC? Oh my gosh, yes. I would be happy to talk to you. About yeah, our please plans do. For Love to hear it. So at the 2023 U.S. Open, we're going to have a great museum presence again. We're going to have a, it's a 50 foot by 50 foot, you know, climate controlled. I hesitate to even call it a tent because it's really not. It's a structure, temporary structure where we will have um, the USGA Museum Experience. Um, And that exhibit is titled Hard Earned Glory. And it tells the story of competitors and champions throughout U.S. Open history who have persevered over obstacles to ultimately compete on golf's grandest stage. Um, And we're going to be bringing 60 artifacts from New Jersey to Los Angeles so that the fans on site can can see these artifacts and and interact more with history. Um, As cultural historians here at the museum, we we really believe that providing a tangible connection to history enhances people's understanding of the past. So we're excited to bring those 60 artifacts. We have have artifacts that belong to John Shippen, Francis We Met, Bob Jones, Ben Hogan, all of those, and even our most recent champion, Matt Fitzpatrick, will have artifacts belonging to him on site as well. Um, and, and that experience will be opened on Thursday, June 8th to June 11th to the public. So even if you do not have a ticket to the U.S. Open, you can come check out the USGA Museum experience and go shopping in the merchandise tent as well um, from June 8th to June 11th. And then after June 11th, it will be for ticketed um those who are coming to the championship. And it's, is that free of charge to the public prior to the championship? Can they just yes. walk in or is there a fee? Yeah. If you're in Los Angeles from June 8th to June 11th, you can just pop over and, and learn a little bit about golf history and, and see some really cool artifacts and learn some new stories as well as go shopping next door in the merchandise tent. But that after June really 11th, cool. yeah, after June 11th, you'll, you'll need a uh, ticket. That is. Can you tell me what item from John Shippen's going to be there? Do you know? You know, I think I know, but I'm not positive, so I don't want to guess wrong. Oh gosh! Oh, you're gonna have to tell me what you think it <laughs> is offline. You, I'll leave you <laughs> <in> suspense. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. Great story. That's another podcast I have in the works. So uh, his story. Oh, is I would a love that. One. So after after the events of the 1954 Junior Am, there were a couple opportunities for Los Angeles Country Club to host USGA events, as I understand it, came down to like one vote either way. Uh, They rejected the opportunity to host the 1958 US Amateur, which would eventually be played at the Olympic Club. And then in 1986, by one vote, the 1986 US Open, which would then be hosted by Shinnecock Hills. 
But then we got a break. In 2017, a USGA event came back to LAC. And what was that event? That would be the 2017 Walker Cup. And tell us a little bit about that event. Of course. The Walker Cup in 2017, really one of the best team rosters in Walker Cup history. I mean, some of the best players in the game today were on that team. Um, Colin Morikawa, Will Zalatoris, Scotty Scheffler. um, And it was a huge victory for the U.S. The previous Walker Cup, the U.S. did not win. And so 2017 at LACC was was a great moment and a great comeback for the U.S. team. And I'm sure some of those players that were on that team are are looking forward to playing again at LACC for a USGA event. Yeah, great memories, I'm sure, right? I think they won 19-7. It was an amazing, amazing It was an amazing, amazing victory. Yeah, 19-7. I mean, they dominated. (laughs) Yeah. So before we move on from LACC into LA history here and the, the history of golf, we'll start with the USGA events, but I figured I'd add a little color. So um, LACC has this kind of reputation for not allowing actors and celebrities to become members. And one of my favorite quotes came from Groucho Marx, uh, who once reportedly said about being turned down as a member of LACC, why would I want to belong to a club that would have me as a member? <laughs> just brilliant quote. I love that quote. And That's great. The other historical tidbit uh, before we leave LACC was on July 7th, 1946, Howard Hughes was flying an experimental XF-11 when the engine failed. He made an attempt for an emergency landing in the fairways of LACC, but he couldn't make it, crashing his plane into some houses in Beverly Hills and nearly killed himself in the process. So he was trying to make that landing and unfortunately didn't make it. And fortunately, he did make it, I guess we should say. So... Beyond LACC, the city of Los Angeles has a strong history of USGA events. Where would you like to start? I would like to start with the story of Maggie Hathaway. Oh, let's hear it. I do not know this story for the record. Okay, even better. I can teach you something new. <laughs> yeah, let's go. So Maggie Hathaway was an actress, a blues singer. Um, she came to Los Angeles from Louisiana in the 1940s. Um, and she actually took up golf in 1955. Um, which is a funny story in and of itself. Uh, she she made a bet with Joe Lewis. Um, so Joe Lewis was playing at a golf course. And actually, Maggie was scolding Joe Lewis for playing at a, a predominantly white, all-white golf course at the time. It was 1955. Um, and they made a bet. And Maggie said that she bet even she could hit the green on her first try. Oh. Um, and she actually won. She won the bet over Joe Lewis. Wow. Um, and Joe Lewis, I know it's remarkable. I don't think I would have won the bet, but um, Joe Lewis ended up buying her her first set of golf clubs and she got, she was bitten by the bug um, very quickly. And she really began to play golf and love the sport. Um, but what she found in Los Angeles in 1955 was, was a lot of discrimination. Um, as an African-American woman, she wasn't allowed to play on a lot of the golf courses. And Maggie decided to lead demonstrations at different Southern California segregated golf courses. Um, She wrote about them in the L.A. Sentinel. Um, She was a journalist and a columnist there. Um, And she really made a huge difference in paving the way for opening up municipal and public golf courses on, on the eve of the civil rights movement. I did not know that story. That's fascinating. Really a remarkable person. Uh, She, she saw golf as sort of, a way to 
insert herself in social and cultural history and and use golf courses as a political battleground. Um, And today um, in Los Angeles, there's Maggie Hathaway Golf Course, which is a nine-hole par three course that was renamed in her honor in, in 1997. Oh, that's fantastic. Speaking of discrimination, I, I think we could probably jump into another USGA event, the US Open at uh, Riviera in 1948. Uh, obviously, yeah. Ben Hogan's known for winning that, but it was there was also uh, history made at that US Open, there if I'm was. not mistaken. Yes, Ted Rhodes became the first African-American to play in a US Open since John Shippen in 1913. Um, and that was a huge moment. It's a year after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in baseball. Golf sort of has this moment when Ted Rhodes goes out for the U.S. Open at Riviera. Um, again, just, just a little bit before the civil rights movement. And he's proving this undeniable talent of African-American golfers. Um, and so it was a huge moment, not only in golf history, but in American history. Absolutely. And paving the way for the the PGA to eventually lose the Caucasian clause that which it had hampered it for obviously decades. Um, I, you know what? I, yeah. A little factoid that I found uh, amazing when I was doing research on John Shippen is we tend to focus on him playing in the 1896 U.S. Open at Shinnecock, but he played in quite a few U.S. Opens over the years. And again, yeah. 1913, like this pivotal U.S. Open, all you hear about, you know, is we met going against the two giants and uh, Johnny McDermott failing down the stretch, and John Shippen's right. in that U.S. Open, and that doesn't get any press. It was the last U.S. Open he played in until, you know, what, 40 years later, 30 years later, where we get Ted Rhodes playing in the U.S. Open. Totally lost in the ink. It's true. It's probably, it's a story we definitely should tell more often, and when you do your podcast on John Shippen, I'll, I'll look forward to hearing more about it. I mean, it's amazing. I just think that's it's I, great. It's story. staggering to me. So what other L.A. golf stories do you want to share? There's so many, I'm sure. There, there really are so many. While we're talking about sort of groundbreaking moments for African-American golfers, in 1957, Charlie Sippert um, became the first African-American to win a major golf tournament uh, when he won the Long Beach Open. So that happened not too far away as well. And, and in the, that victory at the Long Beach Open, he actually used a putter he received from Joe Lewis. So again, tying back into Joe Lewis's obsession with golf. Yeah, and his role to, you know, basically free up the the color lines that separated white and black golfers. I mean, he played a pivotal role in desegregating the game of golf. Definitely, yes. Are any other stories before we go into the next chapter for the USGA? Um, I would love to talk a little bit about golf in Hollywood. Yeah, um, let's do it. So as I mentioned that we're going to have a USGA museum experience at um, LACC. So in addition to celebrating champions and players in the game and at former U.S. Opens, we are going to have a little section where we talk about golf and Hollywood because we're in L.A. and and it's an exciting opportunity to do that. Um, A lot of famous Hollywood stars have been golfers, including Bing Crosby, Bob Hope. They're both members of the World Golf Hall of Fame. Bing Crosby was even a member of the USGA Museum Committee at one point. He oh, really I didn't know that. Deeply. Wow. Yes. He cared deeply about preserving the history of the game. Um, and so we have a lot of artifacts here that belong to Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. And and so that's a story we can tell, too. It's, it's not just about the champions in the game, but it's 
It's about all of these other people that made the game bigger. And Bob Hope and Bing Crosby were also influential in creating championship tournaments that were not just about athletes, but this pro-am concept that had actors and politicians playing alongside professional golfers, which really grew the game and its popularity, not just for people wanting to play the game, but for people wanting to watch the game and say, golf is also a great form of entertainment. We can watch Bing Crosby and Bob Hope do a comedy tour out on a golf course. Oh, that's fantastic. I, you know, I hadn't even thought about that. About, I mean, obviously everyone knows about the Crosby uh, clam bake, but yeah. you don't think about how the effect of, ne- you know, that Hollywood name and pull and what, you know, they could bring to the game of golf outside of, you know, the professionals. I'd never Absolutely. thought of it that way. It made a huge difference in shining light on the sport. You know, people who maybe weren't, Weren't, didn't think they were into sports, but they were watching Bing Crosby and Bob Hope just having a blast out there on the golf course. I mean, how could you not be interested in, in trying it out yourself or watching it? So it really was a huge moment in the game. You know, and it, I guess to that, you see so many cameos and TV shows and movies uh, of, you know, actors in their roles. Like Larry David is unmistakable, right? Playing golf. And his love right. affair for golf going into Curb Your Enthusiasm. And you're right. All that kind of starts with Bing and Bob. Yep, it does. And another, some of the coolest artifacts I think we have in our collection, some fan favorites, are often from that Hollywood collection, whether it's Bing and Bob's artifacts or um, we actually have the Happy Gilmore hockey stick putter here <laughs> in the collection. Um, which is something people always get a kick out of. We also have have, uh, Catherine Hepburn's putter. Excuse me. We also have Catherine Hepburn's putter that she used in a movie. So, you know, if a golf club was on a movie set, that's something we collect here as well. That's so cool. Now, will any of those items be making their way towards LA, do you think? I don't want to speak to it because I'm not positive, but I I I know the list is finalized. But um, I, I think so. I, I know that there will be a corner of the USGA Museum experience in LA that will cover golf in Hollywood. I'm not sure exactly what artifacts will be there sure. yet. Sure. Well, how about the next chapter? I mean, what's the next chapter for the USGA in LA and in California? What What's upcoming that should be of note? Yeah, I mean, it's a big year for California, actually, Massive. in general. Massive year. Yeah. Um, Obviously, we've talked about the 2023 U.S. Open. Um, not far away, though. The We talked a little bit earlier um, in this show about the women's amateur. And the 2023 women's amateur is going to be at Bel Air Country Club. Very close by, a historic storied course, and they'll be hosting the women's am this year. So we have two events right in the Los Angeles area. Um, and, and down the road, coming up, the 2026 U.S. Women's Open will be held at Riviera again. So a lot more LA to come. And the last thing I'll say is, is the 2023 U.S. Women's Open will be held at Pebble Beach for the first time ever this summer. Um, so that's a huge milestone moment for the the game of golf and especially for the women's game. Um, while it's not Los Angeles, it's, it is still California. And um, the U.S. Women's Open has been held at storied courses before, um, and the U.S. Women's Amateur has been held at Pebble before, but never the U.S. Women's Open. So it's something to look forward to. Yeah, and that's roughly 93 years from the first USGA event at Pebble Beach, right? The 1929 U.S. Amateur at yep, Pebble 1929 Beach. 1929 U.S. Amateur. Yeah, mm-hmm. unbelievable. 
Well, how exciting. Well, I mean, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this history of LACC golf in LA and a little bit of a sprinkling of California USJ future golf history for the books that need to be written yet. Of course. Um, thank you so much for having me. I, USGA is always here to support and um, provide any sort of historical context for future podcast shows that you have. Love it. I love working with the USGA. You guys have an unparalleled access to golf history, and that's always attractive to, to someone like me who's addicted to it. What um, Are you planning on going to the US Open at LACC? I will be at LACC. I'll be, you can find me at the USGA Museum Experience. I'll be there all week. It won't, it won't be a formal tour. There's going to be such a volume of, of people coming through. It's really just to interact with people and, and help provide that sort of personal experience and understanding of the history. So, so it's a conversation. And so you're not just walking through and checking it out by yourself or in a vacuum, but it's, you can talk to us and interact with us. The entire museum and library team will be there to chat and provide context for the history. Will you be able to get out and watch some golf? Um, hopefully a little bit. We'll see. <laughs> well, you have to at some point, even if they're not playing, you got to walk the course. You got to play the, right. you have to walk the course that Glenna won her third in a row. Yes. Yes. That's my dream. Yeah. That, I think that's got to be your mandate. Just say, listen, you know, I'm really, I, I need to study the course for a future article, perhaps. Yes, I'll, I'll certainly make sure that's a priority while I'm there. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Katie. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. I sincerely hope that you enjoyed our golf history preview of the 2023 U.S. Open. It was a sincere pleasure to be joined once again by my friends at the USGA. If you are in Los Angeles prior or during the U.S. Open, please take a moment to check out their interactive museum and let me know what you found interesting. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Lewis.